In this passage this morning, we're going to see how Jesus, um, how Jesus' ministry demonstrated how he was the master over demons and diseases. We'll be looking at pretty much three incidences that took place in a matter of one day and then see how people reacted the next day and also how Jesus responded to them. Now what I hope that the Lord will reveal to you with these passages is that um, how to stay focused, how to stay focused in the calling God has given you, that God has given for you when things get intense, when things get hectic, when like, you know, there's a lot going on and, you know, how, you know, by looking at Jesus and how he handled it, hopefully you'll also have a better idea on how you can handle it yourself. So before we get into God's word, let's open up with uh, a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful for you this morning. We are thankful that you brought us all here safely and soundly, that you've given us um, another day to, to breathe, to see your beauty, Lord, to be able to embrace those we love, to be able to um, just enjoy your beautiful creation, Lord. In spite of all the, uh, the troubles, all the um, stresses of life, Lord, I, I pray that everyone here will just see who you are and see your beauty and just see the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. So now we ask this morning as we get into your word that you speak to us mightily, Lord. Speak to us cl clearly, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from you, Lord. We're hungry for you. Teach us this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Soften our, hinds, our minds and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and again, we're going to pick up, pick up where we left off in verse 31. That's where we're going to start reading, verse 31. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And the word of God says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them, came over them all. And they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. All right, well, having been rejected and almost killed in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus departs from there and travels to the town of Capernaum. 
and resume teaching on the Sabbath. Well, in this passage we just read, Luke tells us about a particular event that occurred in one of those Sabbaths. Now, we're, um, we're told when, when Jesus taught, people were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In other words, he taught, um, how he taught and what he taught was so profound, it was so moving that his audience couldn't do anything but just silently sit there in complete awe. You see, they had heard already all kinds of teachers every, pretty much every Sabbath since they were children going to Sabbath school. And for the most part, they were all alike. They, these teachers would set out a problem and then told you whatever, what every rabbi, whoever taught, about that problem. Then they went on to the next one without solving that problem. What made Jesus distinctly different was that he wasn't recycling the teachings of other teachers. He taught God's word and interpreted it as it was meant to be. Then he'd essentially say, this is the truth. Take it or leave it. Often, when the truth is told, when, whether it's uh, a pastor, a teacher, a speaker, um, whether it's a, f a friend, a Christian friend, a wife, a husband, um, when we're told the truth about something, especially about us, it often stings and it hurts. But the truth that comes from God it heals. It also heals. It's meant to do that. I mean, God's truth is meant to convict you of sin. It is meant to show you what is really going on. And when you recognize it, when you acknowledge it, and when you say, when you admit to it, are humble about it, rather than fighting about it, it, it hurts, yes, but it does heal. It does heal and it brings you into a closer relationship with the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what the Word of God does. This is what the truth does. It just cuts straight to the heart. So even though his authoritative style of teaching may have been a large reason crowds came to hear him, one of the main reasons they came to see him was because of what we're told next. While Jesus was in the synagogue, verse 33 says that a man with an unclean, demonic spirit was also there. Now, there are three things that I wanted to point out in regards to that. First, this verse shows us that demon possession is real. And they can be among a group of worshippers. 
Yes, even while Jesus is present. In case you've ever wonder, wondered if it's possible for a demon-possessed per, person or yeah, person to show up at church, well, again, this verse clearly tells us that they can. However, if Jesus is truly present at that church, it's only a matter of time before they're exposed. Second, the fact that it's described as an unclean spirit implies that evil spirits are impure and produce impurity in the lives of their victims. Now, we're not exactly, or we're not entirely told, or yeah, we're not uh, told specifically what this unclean spirit was doing to this man, but their objective, these evil spirits, their objective has always been to cause pain, create destruction, and ultimately kill and destroy. And this could be the person themselves, this can be relationships, this can be um, pretty much anything. All they want to do is just destroy, cause chaos. Now this may, have been, this may have been the plan there in that synagogue, but that plan was thwarted the longer he was present, or lo- the longer he was in the presence of Jesus. Third, no one probably knew that this man was possessed by an evil spirit. Otherwise, do you think they would have let him in if he was acting this way or if everybody knew that he was possessed by an evil spirit? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they would have allowed him in. Now, here's how I see it. I, as a church, we mustn't treat anybody that walks through our doors with prejudice or treat them any differently. We, we need to just love everybody that comes through, no matter what they look like, no matter what kind of lifestyle they have, no matter what their political affiliation is or what they, you know, what they do in their spare time. We shouldn't have an attitude of, of prejudging them. We need and we should treat all people that come through our doors with love, respect, and with dignity. If, however, someone like this man in our story is among us and it's revealed and he's exposed, well, yeah, the Lord will make it known. He'll, he'll let us know. I mean, our spirit, I mean, we, we have the Lord's spirit in us and I absolutely believe that, you know, we'll, we'll just know when that, when that happens. And, and when it does, he'll also lead us on how to deal with it appropriately. Now again, we're not entirely sure during this time in the synagogue whether Jesus was teaching or he was just listening there, uh, listening and watching. But sometime during that service, this possessed man outed himself. Now he doesn't say this, but I picture Jesus just sitting among a crowded room of people and just staring at this man the entire time. Just eyes locked in on him while he taught or while he sat there and until the the demon just couldn't take it anymore. It says that he cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. 
What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, let me point out just a few observations here too. His outburst wasn't a cry of anger and frustration, but it was one of terror. He looked at Jesus and was completely terrified. He was scared of him. The demons knew who Jesus was. But it's interesting that the chosen people, pretty much everybody that was in that room, those from his own city, did not appreciate who Jesus was. Also, these demons understood, they knew that Jesus was more powerful than them. They couldn't stand up to him. And lastly, that demon testified that Jesus was holy and pure and was basically admitting that the wilderness temptations had failed to corrupt Jesus. Now, how did Jesus handle the situation? Was he scared? Was he embarrassed that this man, demon-possessed man, had called him out? Did he argue with this demon-possessed man? Did he just ignore him? Did he try to reason with this evil spirit? No, he didn't do any of those. All the Lord did was issue a twofold command. Be silent and come out of him. With these two powerful words, Jesus clearly demonstrated that he was and continues to be master over demons. You see the devil and his minions, they know they can't go toe-to-toe with the Lord, with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. What he commands, they must do. Now, if demons have this fear and this reverence to him, shouldn't we also? Shouldn't we as believers, as Christians, as followers, have the same kind of reverence? I, you know, it's sad when I see all kinds of people proclaiming to be Christians, but they're more stubborn and they're more, they, they do a lot more, they do a lot of evil things. I mean, embarrassing things, things that are, and that, that just you know, put a bad name to the Christian faith. If you consider yourself, if you call yourself a Christian, do you have a fear of the Lord? Is that something that when, when, you, you know, when you're walking around, when you're around friends or at school or at work, are you acting as if, again, Jesus is there with you? Are you acting as if you know, you're one of the guys or you're one of the girls and you can just participate in, in, in their behaviors? And you know, are you representing our Lord and are you honoring him with your words and with your actions? So then what we see here is in one last hissy fit, the demon threw the man down in front of everyone in that synagogue and came out of him 
without hurting him at all, not a scratch. In verse 36, it says, amazement came over them all. So not only were they astonished at his teaching, but now his actions amazed them. They had never seen anyone like this who had such authority in teaching as well as authority over demons. Somebody better call TMZ because now everyone's talking about him. Everyone is like, who is this guy? We need to, you know, we need to know more about him. But here really are the questions that really matter. Will they believe? Is this the, really the kind of witness that Jesus wants? What must be added to their stories of authority before it becomes faith? Now, if we were to take a broader look at this, at this passage, just these verses that we just read, here's what we can learn from this particular incident. One of the first things that we should notice is that Jesus didn't allow his experience in Nazareth, in his hometown, to shape his calling. You see, a lot of other people would have thrown in the towel. They would have given up, man, this is too hard, this is too difficult. My own people, my own you know, friends and family, they've rejected me. They would have just said, I'm done with this whole teaching thing. But see, our Lord refused to be identified or to be defined by that experience. As he went to Capernaum, he left that issue behind and continued to go forward with the mission. He didn't take that with him. He didn't allow that rejection, those feelings that maybe, you know, those, man, why are they feeling, why are they making me feel? Why are they doing this to me? And is this going to happen the next time? They, he didn't take that with him as he went on, as he continued on with his calling where God wanted him to be. Now, we ought to have the same mindset or else, yeah, we're going to be, wherever the, wherever the Lord calls us next, we're going to be dragging those same issues wherever he has us, wherever he brings us. And we're going to have those thoughts and feelings with us where the Lord sends us next. Have you been hurt by another church? Have you been rejected by friends and family? Have you, whatever it may be, it's, you know, we got to do what Jesus did and just leave it back there. He has everybody here. He has everybody in their churches for a reason. Now, am I, necessar- am I concerned that, you know, again, we're not full here? No, because I know that he has people where he wants them to be. And when he does bring them here, wherever it may be, he's going to, you know, it's gonna be, he's going to do something great here with them too. My hope again is that whatever issues and problems they have, they just don't bring them here with them. And if they do, we're here to minister. We're here to just to, to help and, and, and to pray and to heal with them or pray with them and to help them heal. But again, it's, it's important. It's so necessary that, that whatever issues, like Jesus did, you just leave them back there. 
Now, I, I covered a lot of this a couple weeks ago. I covered the rejection part um, when I last covered uh, Luke chapter 4, but I want to share with you again this one, this one verse. All of us, at one time or another, will be rejected. But Jesus said in John 16, 33, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now, we also have to keep in mind that when you're rejected by people, it doesn't mean that God has. In fact, our Lord said this in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. And that's from the New Living Translation, if, if you're curious. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's inevitable. It's going to happen, that rejection, being treated badly. It's going to come. Now, the second thing we should notice, and here I'll, I won't spend too much time on it, but um, I, I do want to mention a little, about, a little bit about you know, demons. Jesus wasn't intimidated by a man who was possessed by a demonic spirit. And guess what? Neither should we. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has given us for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And he also wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit of slave, slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There's no reason to fear. God, he's protecting us. He's watching over us. He knows what's going on and he won't let any of these evil spirits harm us. Now, I would advise, though, of trying to stand against demonic spirits without proper instruction, without, proper, without the proper tools. We, we see examples of people just trying to, um, especially, well, in Acts, of, of people trying to exercise demons and, and the demons attack them twice as hard. You have to know what really, what's really going on. You have to, it, it's important for you to really understand how to deal with these demonic spirits. Now here are just a, a couple of examples, a couple of instructions and tools were given in Scripture. That prayer in all cases is necessary, but in some cases, it's essential. In Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus said that there were certain kinds of evil spirits that can only come out by nothing but prayer. 
It's the only way these spirits will come out is by prayer. Also, we must have a heart of submission to the Lord. You have to have that heart of, of depending on the Lord, of allowing him just to, to, to do his work, to do what he needs to do, submitting to him. James 1.7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says that we must put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. It's this armor that'll protect us and will help us to fight against the devil, to stand up against the devil. And thirdly, just as the men in the synagogue were amazed at what Jesus has done, the closer you walk with the Lord, the, the more intimate of a relationship you have with him, people will begin to be amazed at what God is going to be doing or what God is doing through you. They're going to want to know, hey, I, used, I thought you used to party and drink and, and you know, do all kinds of stuff. And uh, what happened? They're going to start asking questions. Your life is, you know, people are going to start seeing you uh, treat others with more respect. They're going to start asking questions. Hey, what's going on with you? And it's those times, during those instances, those are the best times to witness. Those are the best times to testify. Those are the best times to, to share what Christ has done in your life. You don't necessarily have to, you know, I, I, you don't have to necessarily make an effort. I got to go out and I got to preach today. I got to share the gospel. No, those opportunities will arise. Those opportunities will come your way as you live your life, as you as the Spirit continues to, to work in you and, and as, that, as God's love just flows out from you. And then, again, people are going to ask and you're going to give them an answer. Now, you'd think that after expelling an evil spirit out of a man, Jesus would call it a day and spend the rest of his Sabbath doing what Jews normally do on the Sabbath and, and, and relax. But as we'll soon see, his day was far from over. So, so let's go back to our passage and pick up in verse 38 and read to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 4, verse 38. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place 
But the crowds were searching for him. They came, they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. If you want to know what a typical Sabbath day was like for Jesus, this passage and the one prior to this gives us a good picture of that. Immediately following the stunning incident that took place in the synagogue, Luke tells us that Jesus entered Simon's house. Now, Simon here is is Peter, as we'll later find out. Now, upon arriving there, he gets word that Simon's mother-in-law, his wife's mom, was suffering from a severe fever. So he decides to help. This goes to show a couple things about how Jesus served. Jesus was more than willing to minister in private settings just as much as he was willing to serve in public ones. And Jesus was also willing to help those closest to him. We often get so caught up sometimes as, as Christians who are serving to, to, to serve those outside our home, those in our community. We give to good charitable uh, foundations or, or ministries. But are we spending time ministering to those closest to us? Men, are you ministering to your mother-in-law? Women, are you ministering to your mother-in-law or father-in-law? As hard as it is, are you just asking, hey, what can I do for you? Can I give you a cup of water? Something simple. It's that heart of ministry, of just serving those closest to you, that you know, Jesus showed us how to do that. And I also want you to keep in mind that Luke was a medical physician. So when he wrote that she had a severe fever, he wasn't exaggerating. This was a severe fever, probably something that would have hospitalized her. She probably would have been, probably would have considered her gone. This was severe. He knew what he was talking about. Well, again, without any concern about getting sick himself, about how contagious that fever was, Jesus approaches the woman. He stood over her and rebuked the fever. And what does it say? That fever left her. There wasn't a slow recuperation. There wasn't any leftover signs of weakness. She was completely healed. How do we know this? Well, it says right there that she just got up immediately and began to serve them, began to serve the guests that were there. How many elderly people do you know that will quickly get up after a severe illness and immediately begin to serve an entire household? I mean, I don't know any, 
and those that have attempted, I, I think it's brave, but you can still tell that they're not feeling well. She was completely healed, as if nothing was going on. So what we see here is that by rebuking the fever, Jesus here now was demonstrated that he was also and continues to be master over diseases. But guess what? He still wasn't done. Luke continues to tell us that when the sun was setting, which was typically the time the Sabbath ends, people began to bring their sick and diseased ones to him. We're then told that he spent, he spent the rest of his free time personally ministering to them by laying his hands on each and every one of them. And he healed them. Our Lord here exemplified to us how to serve the needs of others before our own. But he, dis, he didn't just heal people. Verse 41 says that also demons were coming out, out of many, were coming out of many. This literally means that they were being expelled one by one one after the other. And as he did that, they would testify about who he was by shouting and saying, you are the Son of God. And this again shows that he was master over both demons and disease. Jesus, however, rebuked them and not, and he wouldn't allow them to speak. Now, why? Why wouldn't he let them say anything? Because they knew he was the Christ. See, what these demons really intended to do was to assert control over him by exposing him, by exposing his true identity before the appropriate time. It wasn't time yet. It was still early on, maybe his second year of ministry, and it still wasn't time for people to know that he was the Christ. But these demons did, and what they wanted to do was just control that whole narrative, control everything that was going on. In addition to that, they really didn't have any respect for him or what God was trying to do through him. So he shut them up because he didn't want their, their, their testimony to be relied upon. Our Lord knew that his father would, would use other and far better instruments to announce that fact, to announce the fact that he was the only one and true son of God, the Messiah. Well, after such a demanding day, no one would have blamed Jesus for being absolutely exhausted and wanting to sleep in the next day. But according to verse 42, that's not what happened. Now, this is how Mark chapter 1, verse 35 puts it. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. 
Although Jesus spent most of his time ministering among people, he also knew the value of spending alone time with God the Father in prayer. It was in prayer that he found his strength and power for service. And that's where we need to find our strength and power as well. This is why prayer ought to be a priority for us as Christians. You see, prayer is what guides us to the right relationship with God, the right beliefs about Him, and leads us to the right places and opportunities to serve. When we're regularly communicating with Him, the Lord enables us to minister by empowering us with His Spirit. Your day, our day, my day should always, should begin and end with prayer. And you should do it in private as much as you do it with other believers, as much as we do it here in the church. If the church is the only place where you pray, yeah, you need to improve on that. You need to spend alone time. You need to just spend time with your Heavenly Father. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus gave us an example of how to do this, how to do this and the blessings that come with it. There he said, when you pray, go into your room. You have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now here's what I want you to understand that the emphasis here isn't where that place of prayer needs to be, but that it should be somewhere private. It should be somewhere where there won't be any, any interruptions, where you won't get phone calls, where you won't get kids bothering you, where you won't have to, you know, have to check you know, your email, whatever it may be, where there's no interruptions. It's just you and the Lord. And you know, this can be... This is, can be five minutes, three minutes, it can be 10 minutes, it can be 30 minutes, as long as you want. But it needs to be done. It needs, you just need to spend that private time with the Lord. Now, this may differ from person to person. For Jesus, he often prayed privately in deserted places. And Paul often prayed alone when he was in prison. So even if my place a private prayer looks different than yours, it's, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. See, you know, if I told you where my private place of prayer, you, you'd probably laugh. But it, it, again, it may not be the same as yours. The important thing is that it's, it's as long as that, as long as it's just you and God and no one else, no one else at all. Well, as our Lord was enjoying his time alone with his father, it says that the crowds were searching for him. When they finally found him, they tried to keep him, tried to keep him from leaving them. Again, the important question, why? Why did they try to keep him from leaving? When people, because when people in need 
are having those needs met, they don't want to let go of it. They don't want to let go. They, they don't want to, I need for you to continue to meet our needs. There's still so much more that needs to be done. Do you guys remember in Genesis 30? Here's a good example. Laban was aware that God had blessed, had blessed him because of Jacob. And he did everything he could to get him to stay. He told him, yeah, I'll let you marry my daughter. And we later found out it was not the daughter he wanted. Then he said, okay, we'll stay here an extra, extra few years and I'll let you marry my other daughter. So he did that. Well, time continued to pass and, and he continued to serve and Laban continued to be blessed. Yeah, he continued to do everything he could to get him to stay, but you see, Jacob had other plans. And he got to a point where Jacob, Jacob was like, I, I need to go. It's, I need to go. It's time. Well, in a similar way, the people of Capernaum urged Jesus to stay because they had an agenda. They had their own agenda for Jesus. And they were expecting him to carry it out. Simply put, they were pretty much telling, they wanted to tell Jesus how to minister. Our Savior, however, had, diff had a different agenda and reminded them that his purpose, his entire purpose was to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns. You see, he didn't minister because of popular demand. He didn't look to find where the biggest crowds, the loudest acclamation, the gr and the greatest number of results could be recorded. Having just prayed, he became aware of the places where the Father was at work. And that's where he went. Not where people were clamoring for miracles. Jesus also understood that there were many more people who needed to hear the gospel, not just a privileged few in a local population center. This would be as if the city of El Paso was telling Jesus, you know what, stay here. Stay here and minister to us. There's still a lot more people that need to be healed. There's still a lot more people that have demons in them that need to get expelled. The people here need you more than the people of Los Angeles and the people of Chicago than the people of New York. You don't have to go there. Just stay here. Minister here. So do you see they were trying to, they had their own agenda for him. They were pretty much telling, them, telling him how to minister. But Jesus, again, had his own agenda. This chapter then ends by telling us that our Lord and Savior did exactly what he said he needed to do. To preach, he preached in the synagogues of Judea. So although the miracles and the healings were absolutely impressive, the main focus of his ministry wasn't to put on a show. It was to preach, teach, and share the good news about the kingdom of God. Every so often, Every once in a while, I'll go and check out what some of these big name preachers are up to. And I'll, what I 
some of the things, and here are some of the things I regularly notice. There are a lot of popular preachers out there who's, who seem to put more of an emphasis on showing the power of God than on sharing the gospel. If you don't believe me, find a video of a well-known pastor that has hundreds and thousands or even millions of views and has their churches packed with thousands of people. And, and, and as you actually, as you're watching this on YouTube, uh, try to do this. Turn the monitor away and just listen carefully. And as you do, try to answer these questions. Are they mainly focused on showing you something or telling you something? Are they rightly dividing the word of God? Or are they twisting passages to fit something they're about to say or something they're about to do? Do they have their own narrative or are they following what the word of God says and what it's meant to say? Are they preaching themselves and trying to impress the audience with the gifts that they have? Or are they preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now afterwards, I want you to answer this last question. Are the people going to that church or watching these videos on YouTube, are they there to or watching to see something happen? Or are they there to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? The correct answer should be here that should be to hear the truth of God's word and see it transform sinners into saints. You see, this is the real miracle. The real miracle is when a person is born again, when they go from going being destined to go to hell to now having life everlasting and that miracle that a person being transformed is far more powerful than seeing demons getting expelled and diseases being cured that stuff's great Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to give new life. That is more powerful. That is the greatest display of God's power. Now, is it possible for God to display his power to, to lead people to Christ? Yes, of course. In Acts chapter 16, God caused a violent earthquake to open the cell doors out of a prison that Paul and Silas were in. When the jailer realized what had happened, he was about to kill himself, but Paul yelled out and told him to stop. This, it then says in Acts chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But here's the thing. Paul and Silas didn't leave him hanging there with that question. It says in verse 42 that they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. You see, God used that incident to lead Paul and Silas to preach the gospel 
And as a result, an entire household was saved. The emphasis of the gospel was still a priority. It wasn't about the, the power. They weren't like, oh, did you see what God just did? That is, you can see a lot more if you just come and follow us. No, the emphasis again was on preaching the gospel, sharing Christ. And that's what I believe, again, that should be the priority of every single church that preaches. Preaching the word must and should always be the emphasis, and it must be done in season and out of season, here in El Paso and wherever he sends you. And I'll be honest with you, I'd rather hear a sermon that convicts me of my sin and moves me to repentance than watching one that entertains me but doesn't change me. Before I close, I, uh, what I hope you understand, I, I hope you understand this, that ministry for Jesus is the same as ministry by Jesus. It's ministry of kingdom good news. It's telling people who Jesus is, the anointed Messiah, Son of God, the Holy One of God, come to help the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, the, the oppressed. It's acting on behalf of people in need, healing all kinds of diseases, overcoming anything that would oppress people and rob them of God's freedom. It's sending people back to their own ministry of serving others. And it's opposing Satan in all his, in all his guises. Tem tempter, kingdom giver, adversary, ministry planner, theology teacher, and evil spirit inhabiting, um, inhabiting people. Such ministry brings many responses and sadly, some of those responses often hurt, especially when friends and family, when they don't understand, when they don't understand what you're trying to do, when all you're trying to do is help them. And more often than not, many of our friends and family will often demand more help for you to minister even more rather than joining us in faith and ministry. They may think that what you're doing is a waste of time and will have maybe have all kinds of alternatives to uh, minister or to, to ministry that will lead to worldly success. They'd be like, you don't have to do that. If you really want to help, join this organization and you can make some serious money. Or you can do this or you can do that and, and man, people all around will know who you are you'll become popular. People will know you. People will want to vote for you. But that's not what ministry is all about. The reality is this. That kind of success, it doesn't come from the Father. As we serve, it's important that we understand that ministry that ministry not guided by a relationship with the Father isn't ministry at all. It's us working to gain the approval of God 
and man. And serving uh, in this way will only lead to frustration and disappointment. And the Bible says that we ought to do all things for the glory of God. When you're serving, no matter how difficult, how hard it gets, are you doing it for the glory of God? Or are you doing it to gain brownie points with God? Are you thinking to yourself, you know what, if I do this more, I know when I get to heaven, I can say, you know what, God, I did this, 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 and that. Well, that's not how it works. He wants you to serve just because you love him. and You want to do what's right, and, and you're doing it for his glory again. Doing it on your own, in your own power, is just going to lead to frustration, disappointment. Ministry is being anointed by the Spirit to carry on the work of the Son of Obedience to the Father who sends us. Now in verse 42, that we're told that the day after Jesus healed many with diseases and had rebuked many of others, that the, the crowds came searching for him. Let me ask you an important question. Have you ever seen God do something powerful something great, something amazing in your life? Have you ever seen him work? And since that moment, have you been searching for him? Have you been looking for him? Well, let me tell you, he's nearer than what you think. He's been waiting for you. So, if you're allowed to, I, I want to help you to lead you to him. But first, let me, for those watching, listening, maybe if there's anyone here, let me share what he did for you. Jesus came to die for you. He came to take your sins upon him on the cross. He lived, he, he lived in almost an entire life, 30, almost 33 years or more, preaching nothing but good news. And then he was betrayed, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was hung on the cross, and eventually he was killed, all because he loves you, all so that you can have eternal life. And all you have to do is just come to him, come to him broken, and, and come to him aware that of what he did for you and saying, yes, Lord, I want to be near to you. I believe in what you, in, in what you did there on the cross. I want to have a new life. I don't want to live that life anymore. That's what he did for you. And if and if that's you and you're ready and you want to receive Jesus into your heart, I, I do, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So if that's you, wherever you're at, close your head or close your eyes and bow your head and just pray this, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry I've, I've blown it and I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. 
I confess that he is Lord. And I believe that he rose on the third day. I come to you completely empty. So now fill me with your spirit. Thank you for giving me everlasting life, Lord. Thank you for, for what you did on the cross. Now surround me with people that will care for me, that will show me, that will teach me, that tell me, just lead me to, to have a closer relationship with you, Lord. In Jesus' name. I pray.